the Jericho Network on Westwood One. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to another episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn here on Westwood One. And of course, co-hosting with me is the legendary Alan Niven. See? Isn't that nice to say? Legendary? It's ridiculous. Oh, come on. It's not. The, 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 the bands that you were involved with, especially the Guns N' Roses one, uh, certainly have changed the course of music. They, you know, they took all that glam stuff. They were the precursor, if you want, to Nirvana in the sense that they cleaned up the glam scene, made rock dangerous again, and then had those other guys from Seattle come in and go, yeah, you want to see dangerous? See how dangerous we are wearing flannel? Oh, yeah. That's danger right there. Um, and, and, and whining about being depressed all the time. Right. Um, no, that's, that's ridiculous to use that terminology, legendary. Um, maybe infamous might be appropriate, but um, the other day I was just figuring it out. And in one way or another, um, and it warms my heart, I've been able to contribute to some degree or another to over 250 million sales of records. And it's rather nice to know that you can reach that many people. And it's rather nice to know that you can hear the music in the jungles of Indonesia and you can hear it in Abu Dhabi and that rock and roll defies borders and defies frontiers. And really does work at bringing people together by their own consent, and that I like. And, and what, what, what's really cool is that you can take all that music that you were involved in and stick it in a box set and sell it for $1,200. I believe you're <laughs> overstating the case there. I think it was merely $999. But don't forget um, the shipping. There was shipping. Oh, there was shipping on top of that. Of course. Well, I have the suspicion that the employees of Universal know what they're getting for Christmas. Well, hopefully uh, they will send one my way. I, I got the little, you know, four CD or whatever it was, little tiny undeluxe version, but I'm going to have to live with it. But today, aujourd'hui, on the fabulous, fabulous episode, uh, we have from Nazareth, the one and only Pete Agnew. They have a new album called Tattooed on My Brain. I have, of course, had a chance to hear it. And I thought it was great. They have a song on there called Pole to pole and uh yeah um, hopefully it's not about being in the shower hopefully it's about like the south pole and the north pole but um great song great album great to see the band continuing uh, you know so we will we'll talk about that in a minute we've also got jeff pilson from the wonderful wonderful foreigner he is in a new band with well george lintz mick brown and robert mason which has been reported as being called The End. And Jeff corrects me and says, no, 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 no. It is not The End. That is George who is saying it wrong. It is actually called, and I will let you get to the interview to hear what the actual name of that is. But we talk about, of course, that project and and Foreigner and everything else he has done. And if that wasn't enough, we will end the episode. In fact, no, we are not going to end the episode. We're going to have that right in the middle with Marty Friedman of, well, formerly of, uh, well, 
We're not allowed okay. to say. Shh, we're not allowed to say. They asked us not to say. But he's in a band, right? That that one that you just mentioned. But he has oh, got that's a... so that's so silly when publicists say you can't mention this and can't mention that. History's history, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying anything. I'm not saying anything. <laughs> but he was in in a in a band that played a long time ago that people liked that has a cruise coming up later this year that we can't mention. Uh, but he has a new album called One Bad MF and Live, and that is out, of course, now, so check that out. A lot of great stuff, and of course, he is a huge, huge KISS fan, which of course means he is both powerful and attractive. But we do talk about the KISS, the end of the road tour with Marty, and we get his take on that. And uh, just to circle back to the front, before we get into all these interviews, we were talking about Legendary and... I had a chance to uh, run into Alice Cooper over the weekend, and we had a quick, quick 10-minute chat about his new live album and about uh, the tour, and we even spoke about Dick Wagner. So I'm going to start with that. I, I don't necessarily consider it an interview. It was so quick, so short, so hello, how's it going, that uh, we will consider this the hors d'oeuvre of today's episode. H- how does that yeah, sound well- to you? That sounds fine. I mean, Alice is a very busy boy. Uh, I am amazed that he is still out there touring and at the same time doing a radio show, which uh, you can hear in all parts of the planet. Um, he, and he plays a lot of golf. Uh, he, he, he's a little energizer bunny in the way that he keeps going, I'll tell you. Yeah, oh, he absolutely was. And, of course, he was uh, in a group in the past called... Alice Cooper, and I don't know if we're allowed to... Are we allowed to say that Alice was in a band called Alice? I'm not sure. I might have to edit that out, but just in case, here's a quick chat with the one, the only, Alice Cooper. Hey, Mitch. Hey, Alice. How are you? I am great. We're in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina tonight, and uh, finishing up, I think it's 15 more shows to go uh, at the end of a 190-city tour. Yeah, which is great. And I just saw you in uh, Syracuse on Saturday, and it was absolutely... Oh, you did? Oh, great. Yes. yes. And in fact, uh, when I saw you backstage, I said I had an interview with you Monday, and you said, oh, great. I'll have oh, that's to in- right. That's right. <laughs> I'll that's have right. to invent yeah. new yeah. lies. So, so, But uh, let's quickly talk about a, para- a paranormal evening at the Olympia in Paris. Uh, great live album, and, and the band is kicking. Just talk to me about putting together this live album and, and having... Nita and Ryan and Tommy and Glenn and all that and Chuck uh, actually be on this album with you? Well, you know, the, rarely I, do I ever think about doing a live album uh, unless the band deserves it. And this is one of the bands that deserved a live album. I mean, I, I've got Glenn Sobel, who was voted best drummer in rock and roll, and I've got Nita, who was voted best female guitar player. And, you know, I mean, all those other guys are just on the, on the money every night. So when every single show could be a live album, in my opinion, that was the one I, I thought, well, Paris, you know, this will be a great, because it's more like a club. We're used to playing arenas, and we're used to playing the big outdoor shows, and we're used to playing those kind of places. And then you play a place in Paris that's like a club. 
and the audience is crazy. And uh, that's going to make a great live album. This is the weirdest thing about this album is, first of all, there's no such thing as a purely live album. People go in after they hear the tracks and they fix this note on the bass and they fix that drum part. And then that vocal was a little off, so let's go in and fix that. We didn't go in to fix anything on this album. Everything was exactly the way we played it that night. And it absolutely shocked me when I heard it. When I heard it back, I went, there's not one mistake on this album. You know, I mean, and it's just, I shouldn't be shocked because the band is like that every night. You know, and to me, that deserves a live album. You know, and, uh, you know, there might be two years from now, five years from now, it might be, it might be a different band. I hope it is, and I'd love to keep this band. But then I would listen to them, and, and they would be good because I would never put a, a, an average album a band together. But there's an excellence about this band that I can't explain. And so I, I, I was sure that a live album was going to do very well. Yeah, and, and, and it's a great live album. Now, we were, we were, I was asked to keep this to 10 minutes. So I'm going to run through a whole bunch of different questions. Uh, I do have Dennis Dunaway okay. on the phone. I have Dennis Dunaway on the phone in an hour from now, so I'll ask him, the, I'll oh, ask him all the Alice Cooper great. questions. Um, not, not too long ago, we, we lost, of course, Dick Wagner. He was on Welcome to My Nightmare and other albums. Uh, just quickly talk to me about, about Dick, because when you pick album or pick band members, you've always picked the best of the best, and Welcome to My Nightmare was this album where if it had gone wrong and it had not sold and people had not cared, your whole career might have been different. What was it like to have Dick in oh, there? Oh, yeah. Yeah, right? Uh, well, first of all, when Bob, I, I, I trust Bob the way I would trust, you know, uh, the way the Beatles trusted their producer, you know, George Martin. You know, uh, Bob and I started together and his instinct and my instincts are very, very similar. So putting that band together was every single guy in that band was the best player. You know, when you take Dick Wagner and Steve Hunter and put, those are your two guitar players. That's like having Mike Broomfield and Elvin Bishop. You know, that's like having Jimmy Page and Jeff Beck. So, you know, it, it, was, it, was, it was to me such a luxury to have those guys in the band. And then to put a show together like Nightmare, which nobody had ever seen anything like that before, it was, it was really the best of the best because it, the show was great and the band was even better. You know, um, in fact, Steven Tyler used to come to me and say, he'd say, how's the dynamic duo? You know, he says, my favorite two guitar players are Wagner and Hunter. You know, and I said, yeah, I know. I was lucky to get them both in the same band. He says, yeah, I know. He said, that was like, that was, that was like having, uh, the, the, you know, the cream of the crop. But, uh, you know, what can you say? I, I, if I can get the best players, I'm going to go for them. But they also have to be guys that will play poker and that will laugh and that won't be always complaining. Guys that will... I always seem to put guys together that are best friends. And I don't remember a lot of turmoil at all backstage ever, you know, because I try to make everybody feel like this is, this is family, you know, 
and everybody kind of reacts like that. So it, it should be a happy thing. A tour should be a happy thing, not a drudgery. Yeah, I agree with that. And and of course, Stephen Tyler would know since he got those guys on the Get the Get Your Wings album to to go. Right, right. In fact, a lot of people don't know that that you know, uh, Train Get the Rolling, Steve Hunter. Yep, that's right. Both of them, you in know. fact, they 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 snuck yeah, in there. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. I could ask a million questions about Welcome to My Nightmare, but I do want to get over to to Trash here because it is coming up on the 30th anniversary. And that one, too, to me, was another important album where after, uh, you know, Raise Your Fist and uh, Raise Your Fist and Yell and Constrictor, there needed to be sort of this MTV darling kind of album, if that's the proper yeah. way to, uh, to quickly talk yeah. to me about the importance of that album. And as the 30th anniversary comes up, do you think maybe I should start revisiting it? Maybe start playing more songs from it? Maybe like, you know, what do you think of it? Uh, yeah, as, yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's, you know, it, you were exactly right with the fact that I was watching bands um, in that era. Basically, they did, they, they went to school on Alice Cooper. They became very conscious of what their look was, uh, of what their swagger was on stage. Uh, MTV was going to give them an outlet to be theatrical. And on top of it, then you had bands writing really good songs and doing really good videos. And on top of it, they were having fun. And it was all about the glamour of it. You know, rock and roll was not just dirty rock and roll. Rock and roll was show business, you know, and at, at its best. And Bon Jovi, Motley Crue, every single band that showed up, you know, uh, Van Halen was great visually and they did great shows and so i sit there and i go okay these guys are now doing what i did in the 70s it's time for me to go back and find that album and the, the common denominator was desmond child i i looked at aerosmith and i looked at, at bon jovi and i looked at all these bands and the one name that kept coming up was desmond child so i finally tracked him down and said, I want you give love a bad name. And I want these songs. I said, but I want the Alice version of it. In other words, I want it sexy. And I want it dark. But I want it to be something that they can't wait to play on the radio. And that's where the first thing we wrote was Poison. Which was like a, almost a bigger hit than School's Out. Uh, and it, it had all those elements in it. And then we did the video. And... I was right back to where I belonged, you know, right in that thing. And people just looked at it and went, geez, I, I guess a lot of kids looked at it and said, who's this guy? Who's this new guy? <laughs> you know, uh, even though I was just going back and doing what I did in the seventies, you know, uh, but, but yeah, the, the idea, I think it was Desmond child. That was really, was really the, 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 the cement between all those, uh, all those things. And you're right, you know, as a fan back then, I remember people picking up the album going, oh, who's this new guy? And I'm like, what are you talking about? He has like whatever it was, like 12 albums. <laughs> and they're like, oh, yeah. no, I, I just, he's, he's a new artist. I'm like, no, he's not. But, but such, a great <laughs> al such a great album. Hopefully there'll be some kind of 30th anniversary. And I know we were asked to keep this to 10 minutes, so I, I will ask one last question. 
Um, You, of course, have, as I said, you know, Nita and Tommy and Ryan, and you have this great, great band, and the live album is great, great, great. But when you get to studio albums, you always go back to the guest. You bring in Roger Glover and Billy Gibbons and and, and Bob Ezrin is doing stuff. And um, will there ever be an Alice Cooper band album with this band, period, end of story, nobody else? You you my touring band, you mean? Yeah, because they're great. Yeah. Oh, I think, you know, I I think that there definitely will be. Um, The last time I did that was The Eyes of Alice Cooper and Dirty Diamonds. You know, that that was that, that was that band. uh, Live, live in the studio. And I would love to do that again with this band. Now, when I work with Bob Ezrin, Bob is very, very creative on a level of saying, let's, why don't we get U2's drummer, you know, uh, on this, on this album. And I went, wow, nobody would ever expect that. And he's going to bring something to the table that nobody, we never, it's just going to bring a new element because he doesn't drum like anybody else. Correct. And that's what worked on paranormal. You know, you, you find songs that fit the, the character. We could not have done fallen in love and can't get up without Billy Gibbons. As soon as we wrote that, I looked, I, I looked at Bob and I went, Billy Gibbons. And he went, oh, yeah. You know, um, so you let the, you know, when you have a song and you, and you look around, if it would have been a really slinky, dark song, I might have said, how about Robbie Craiger? You know, because I know he plays like that. And that would have been a good fit. It, it's nice to have the luxury of being able to call those people, you know, and saying, hey, listen to this. If you think you want to do it, you know, uh, put a track down and let's hear it and let's see if it's going the way we want to go. And, and, and that's a nice luxury. I didn't have that luxury back in the, in the days of doing Schools Out and Billion Dollar Babies in 18. That was all the band, the band, the band, the band. We didn't even have any guest stars anywhere. Like Donovan, you know, maybe, and things like that, but not on the plane. Uh, those were the days when your band was your band. Now, being a, so, a solo artist, I can kind of play around with, you know, that guy on this instrument and this guy on that instrument. And wouldn't it sound great if, if he played this? Well, you know, so it, it, it is kind of a, a real luxury to be able to do that. Well, it, it's, a, it's a luxury just to be Alice Cooper, because at this point, you, you essentially could call up anybody you want. You could, you could call up, you know, Paul Stanley and say, come and do a duet with me and probably would happen. So. Oh, absolutely. That would be you know, Paul and I are great friends. So uh, that would that would be that would be something that would, that could happen very easily. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Alice, uh, a great pleasure. I know we only had ten minutes. Uh, the show in Syracuse the other day, spectacular. I've seen I think thirty-two Alice Cooper shows. I have not gone home disappointed yet. So whatever you're doing, keep doing it because man, it works. Well, this one isn't. This one is in full blast. So. You know, every night, uh, you'd think that you'd get tired of it. I look forward to the show every night. So it'll be great. Merci, monsieur. Thank you, Alice. Always a pleasure. Okay, man. Thanks. Bye-bye. Cheers now. Bye-bye. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. Rock Talk. And a big thank you to Alice for having taken the time to just give us a quick update on everything going on with him. His new album is, of course, A Paranormal Evening at the Olympia in Paris. It is out now. It is a great, great live album. But, uh, Alan, let us get to Le Show. Let us get to the 
main portion. We've had our hors d'oeuvre. Let's get to the main course. And that for me would be the one and only Jeff Pilsen. Um, you know Jeff from back in the day, correct? Yeah, well, Jeff used to be in a band called Dorkin. And are we allowed to say that? Are, are, are we? I, I'd have to check. Um, you know, there's, there's all, all that weird stuff that goes on in bands has definitely gone in, in, on in Dorkin in the past. Right. But, you know, Dorkin were part of the uh, uh, South Bay scene, as I refer to it. Um, and just from my personal point of view, um, Don was very instrumental in that scene. Um, and my friendship with Don was uh, of, of significance in my life. Um, he took me into a, a studio and, and taught me what he knew about production um, at the beginning of our friendship. And, uh, you know, he he introduced me to a band called Dante Fox, which became Great White. Um, but Jeff Jeff was in, in Dorkin, and uh, he, he'd often stopped by the studio when we were recording. And the first and major impression that I had of Jeff, um, even before I heard how well he played, was the fact that I thought he was the cleanest man in rock and roll, in that he would come in and he would sit on the floor in a yoga position and then tell me that, you know, he was a vegetarian and a health nut. And I, I think... Of all the people I've met in rock and roll, Jeff is the healthiest person I've ever met. That's amazing. And, and well, you know, I'm trying to think who else would be in the, in the healthy thing. I guess Alice Cooper that we just spoke to, considering his age and stuff, he's, he's probably been living straight and clean for the last 35 years. Uh, yes, he has. Um, we think. Some, and, and, well, he's, he stopped, <clears throat> stopped uh, drinking. Uh, he put his uh, extra energy into playing golf, which has kept him healthy, walking out on those greens all the time. Um, so, you know, he, he and Jeff are two very clean people in rock and roll. Um, you know, but Jeff, had, Jeff now is uh, with Foreigner and um, very much a, a pillar and a driving force in that band. Um, so he's, he's had a, a tremendous career and... Uh, a lovely guy, a really good soul yep. is the other point I'd make. I'd never heard him say unpleasant things about anyone. Yeah, no, he he was absolutely uh, fantastic. And uh, I don't know if he was in Megadeth or not, but if he was, we wouldn't be allowed to mention it. Just just in case you were thinking, we wouldn't be allowed to say it. Well, I will keep that in mind that I won't say that Jeff Pilsen was in Megadeth. Yes, shh. We can't mention Maybe that word. Maybe George Lynch was for a moment. But Perhaps, but we can't speak that. Yet. But no. Uh, as, jokes aside, of course, uh, Foreigner and and Jeff are still out there. They're still touring. I, in fact, will be seeing them at the Mohegan Sun Casino in Connecticut on December 1st. It is one of those hybrid reunion shows where the band, as they are now, come out and do their whatever, half a set, 10 songs or whatever it is. And then, of course, Ian McDonald and Dennis Elliott and, and the rest of the, and Lou Graham and the rest of the original guys come out and they do their half. So I'm very, very, very much looking forward to that show. But, uh, you know, we listen, we've got a bunch of people on this episode. Uh, if you include me and Alan, we're up to six different people. So let's get right over to Le Seul Unique, the one and only 
Jeff Pilsen. We are speaking with foreigners, Jeff Pilsen. Jeff, always, always a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, this time we've got all kinds of exciting news. So, uh, oh, yeah, okay. right. Let, let's and, get And into... you know what, Mitch? It's yeah. always great to speak with you. It always is and probably always will be. It should always will be. I try not to get... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> try not to get into con- yourself, but yeah, <laughs> I can handle myself. Try not to get into controversy, and you know, as I've gotten older, I stay nice and calm. But uh, we we are going to talk about uh, the end machine. That is the purpose of this one. I will, of course, ask you about foreigner because there's always something exciting going on there. I'm probably throw in a docking question or or two, just because that's sure. what we do. But let's start with the end. Now, <clears throat> it is not called the end, George has been yep. doing interviews, calling it the end, but the actual band yep. name, and by the way, thank God it's not Superstroke, and let's just say that again, thank God it's not Superstroke, <laughs> my lord. Okay. <laughs> my lord. When I, anyway, yeah. uh, but officially, officially, tell everybody the band name, the one that's going to be on the marquee, on the CD. The band booklet. name is The End Machine, and okay. The End are in capitals, and Machine are in small letters. The okay. End Machine. The end machine. Go. So, right. Ultimate classic rock was was kind enough to call it Dokken without Dokken. But explain <laughs> to me, right? Great headline. Explain to me what the band is, because you do have all the Dokken guys except Don and mm-hmm. Robert Mason. Right. Is it? Is it? Are you going out and doing Dokken music just without Don, or is this a very different beast? Well, I. I wouldn't say it's a very different beast. I would say it's its own beast. Um, it's, I mean, first of all, you know, people naturally assume that, you know, there's a competitive thing about it and that it's, you know, talking without Don and all that. That's, that's simply not the case. <laughs> I mean, the, the real truth of it is, is that George and I have this great songwriting partnership that, that's been going on for 35 years and we love to work together. When we bring Mick in to play, we are at home. We have, you know, we're so comfortable as a rhythm section and we work together so well. And Mick is just a tremendous asset to any band, let's face it. Um, but anyways, so the three of us together do have that chemistry, whether we're doing Dokken or we did a TNN record a few years ago or whether we're doing The End Machine. Um, the, I, but, you know, George and I wrote a bunch of this music and then when, when uh, Robert Mason got involved, we realize, wow, this is its own animal. This is incredible. You know, Robert's voice is just so superhuman. Um, his writing is amazing. Um, and so the three of us doing the writing really, really formed into something that I think people are going to be surprised. There are the docking elements there, no question. There's a bit of lynch mob in there too. But there's also something very musical about this record. We sort of let ourselves get very musical and kind of deep in spots but in a very melodic, accessible way. And um, we are so incredibly proud of this music. I mean, this record is really, for us, it's a, it's a real accomplishment. And it is, it sort of stands independent from Dokken and, and it stands independent from Lynch Mob. Um, although there are definitely elements about that. I mean, and you're certainly not going to mistake George's guitar playing. <clears throat> but um, yeah, they, the whole idea of is it its own thing as opposed to Dokken, you know, I don't even really spend much time thinking about that. We just do what we do. We created this music. We love this music. Um, we are working on trying to get some shows together. And if we do shows, of course, we're going to do docking songs. But it's not like we're going out to prove that we can do docking songs without Don. It's just that, when, you know, 
when people come to see us, they're going to want to hear talking songs. So why wouldn't we do it? We'll be able to do a wonderful job with them. So, I mean, Robert is such a great singer. And, you know, we'll have these three-part harmonies that are killers. So, you know, why not? Yeah, that, and I agree with that. Why not? Now, is were these songs, you know, when you did the Return to the East thing, the, the, that Dawkins reunion thing a couple of years ago, were these songs written for potentially being that one bonus track or that two bonus track? Or is it com- completely uh, unrelated? It was, um, well, you know what? I will say that the very early songwriting sessions with George and I, um, you know, writing the music, um, we're, we were thinking, oh, this could be Doc, and who knows? You know, we, we weren't really specific. We just got together and started writing. We, uh, we, but, you know, the thought in the back of our mind was, well, maybe there's, there was a lot of talk, and there was a lot of, there was business talk about a possible Doc and record. Um, so, you know, we started, we wanted to just start writing. We wanted to write, and that was kind of probably foremost on our mind. But we also realized very quickly, well, you know, this is kind of becoming its own animal. Uh, and then when Robert got involved, it totally you know, became its own animal. So um, I would say it's kind of, you know, branched out of the the writing that we did for the bonus track, but not very much, only a slight degree. Okay, so, so that's fair. Now, l- listen, and we'll get off the whole docking thing in, in a second here, but just talk to me about the chemistry, because whether or not it is meant to sound like docking or it is the docking when you write with George and when you write with Mick and when and even when Don's there, you four guys have a chemistry, have a sound, have a thing that fans love. So, so just talk to me about that. The fact that it's not trying to sound like something. There's just a certain chemistry when you guys yeah. get in a room. Yeah. Well, and you know what's so funny about the bonus track on the Dokken record is that was one of the least painful recordings Dawkins has ever made. <laughs> it was so comfortable and natural. Don's vocal happened very quickly. It was, it was, it was, <laughs> it's, it's ironic really, because, you know, the band supposedly has so much, you know, strife within it or whatever, but you're right on a musical level, chemistry wise, we kind of can't help, but do what we do. And, you know, I mean, Don has a very distinctive voice, a very di- distinctive melodic sense george has such a distinctive way of playing and you know i think when when mick and don and i sing it's very unique so yeah it's, just, it's funny i mean that is the chemistry that but that was the beauty of doc and, and we appreciate that we all do um and fans and, appreciate you know, and, it and i think fans appreciate it and the thing that they have to realize is we're still kids at heart so when george and i get together and start writing we want to keep writing you know, and if so, if a docking thing doesn't happen for whatever reason, we want to keep writing. And that's kind of where this sort of um, came into being. And that's a good thing. That's that's music happening organically. And I, I love that. And and that's how I feel about this whole record is it just organically became what it is. And and, I, you know, it goes from very simple, straight ahead, groove oriented rock to some kind of musical little adventures that are very, very cool. And uh, like I say, I'm just really, really proud of it. So what are sort of the plans going forward? Is it really just a side project? And when George is not doing lynch mob and when you're not doing foreigner, it'll happen. <laughs> or is it something that you want to develop? Because I can imagine now after all the years, lynch mob is probably going to tour less. Foreigner is probably going to tour less. I'm guessing now you, you, you correct me where I'm wrong, yeah. but is this sort of like the next step of your career where we develop this band well, and go ahead. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I look at it in a very long-term way because I love playing with these guys. You know, I just do. And, and yes, for the time being, the amount of live shows we could do would, will be limited. There's no question. I mean, foreigner has no signs of slowing down yet. Um, but I love playing with these guys and I love making music with these guys. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm looking at it in the long term. I'm not think I'm not just thinking of a, a side project for one record. We're, you know, we're, we're looking at it as a band, a band that has constraints because of everyone's schedules, but that doesn't mean we don't have plans and hope in the future to, you know, nurture this into something more, of course. So, so what is the hope? Is the hope to, to, to get it to a level where you can go out and do club tours and, and play M3 and do that kind of stuff? Yeah, or, okay, that so would be wonderful. Okay, so sure. it's not just a hope of putting out three records in the next five years and, and just sort of sit at home and not do anything. There really is, we yeah. want to be out there and, and, and develop, because it's got to be hard in this day and age to develop a new, and I, I know people hate the word, it, but a new is. brand, right? It, it, it's, it's hard. Yeah, yeah. What are yeah, some of the of biggest challenges is. for you? Well, the biggest challenge, there's only, there's only one challenge, but it, it is by far the biggest, and it's very overwhelming, and that's scheduling. You know, the amount I tour with Foreigner, which, as I said, will not slow down, at least for the next couple of years, um, you know, that's a very daunting challenge. It's very hard to work things out. We are, we are on the cusp of announcing, I'm hoping, some shows at some point next year at the, for the release of the record. And if that can happen, that would be so wonderful. It would be very exciting for everybody if we could do some shows with this. Um, but uh, but it's it's been difficult working out timing and getting everybody on board. And, you know, everybody has their own life, career, and band. So, you know, it is very difficult to do. So that's why, in a sense, the big picture is let's just take this band forward and let it organically develop and see where it goes. But you can't do a lot of planning because of all the obstacles that schedules make. So you kind of got to roll with the punches, play it by ear, and just continue to try and make inspired, great music and, and hope that the power of that music will carry you forward. And that's what, that's what I can see happening with the launch of this record. I can see us getting into a situation where we do some shows and really get it off to a good start. I think that would be so wonderful. And what a great way to announce a new band. Absolutely. And, and of course, uh, I can see a triple bill in your future with Warrant and Lynch Mob because I saw Robert do double, <laughs> right? I saw Robert do double duty at M3 this year. Why not, you know, yeah. have him step up his game, do triple duty. He's, Stop being such he, a buttercup, he's right? A, he's, <laughs> he is a superhuman. I don't know if any human could do three sets, <laughs> but if anybody could, it'd be Robert. <laughs> uh, so, so talk to me for you about the challenge, not the challenge, that's the, the wrong, the, the creative aspect of, of making new music, because we know Foreigner hasn't done anything in a while. You know, Doc, and you did the Return to the East. It was one song. But talk to me about still being a creative, I don't want to say entity, a creative person who wants to make new music and not just rely on what was done in 1984. I know you have that desire to, to be fresh, to be creative, to write the great next, the next great song. Of course. So that's a, that's a huge driving force. I mean, you know, guys like George and I, and I will say probably Robert and Mick as well. I mean, we, when we started playing music, the whole idea was you get into a band where you write the music, you go tour the music, you write the music, you go tour the music. It was a constant changing cycle. Um, and, you know, that's been kind of robbed of everyone because of what's happened with the music industry and what's happened with 
you know, CDs don't sell. So, you know, consequently it's more difficult to make records. It's, 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 it does because there's no money in it anymore. It's, you have to do it because you love it. <laughs> and I do. And I know that all of us do, and we are committed to whatever it takes to, you know, to be able to stay fresh and vital and creative and inspired. Um, I mean, fortunately there is not, I mean, every time George and I get together, something inspired happens, you know, um, even if it's not, I mean, you know, we've written plenty of songs that we don't show anybody, but even that has something inspired about it. And so I think that's one of the reasons why we love to lean on each other because that happens. That's just a chemical spark that happens. Um, and we both need that. We need that for our, you know, to feel complete as a musician. Um, I can't just go out and play foreigner music, even though I love foreigner music. I have to do other things. That's just part of who I am as a musician. Um, I love producing. I love being in the studio. Uh, I love writing with guys that are great. I, I love writing on my own, but I mean, when I'm doing projects like this and I get to collaborate with high level musicians, that's the rush of a lifetime. So yeah, I don't take any of that for granted. Trust me. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Now, now we, we did mention chemistry, so I, I just want to get over to, to Foreigner for a bit because when when you sure. got that call whatever it was, 2003, 2004, I'm assuming you didn't think that in 2018 we'd still be doing this, right? I mean, right? Of course not. Was it, is it 15, 14, 15 years later? It was 2000, it was, it was summer of 2004. Right. So, so talk to me about the chemistry with that, Ben, even though you've only made, you know, Can't Slow Down, you haven't made a whole bunch of new music, you've got a lot of live stuff, it's all great, but when Kelly and you and Mick and, and the rest of the guys are on stage, which I saw this summer with Whitesnake, and I've seen before. It's magical. Talk to me about the chemistry yeah. within that band. Because, they're, they're, you know, if you're going to replace guys, and, and there's been people, bands all over that have replaced. Some have worked, some haven't. And there's always right. diehard fans that, that bitch, moan, and complain. But for some reason, yeah. right? But with Foreigner, we, yeah. we, we haven't, you know, everything I saw online about the Whitesnake tour was positive for both bands. Yeah. They were like, man, what a package, man, what a package. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. That. I mean, you know, I, I listen, I've been from day one, I've been very thankful to foreigner fans and how gracious they've been about replacing, you know, some pretty iconic people. I mean, listen, Lou Graham is one of my favorite rock voices of all time. So, you know, the fact that he's not there and fans are gracious about it is pretty amazing. Um, but the reason they are is that Kelly, Kelly gives 150% every night. He's an incredible singer. He's an incredible showman. He's an incredible professional. He, you know, he nails it all the time. He, there is no such thing. I mean, I've seen the guy with 103 temperature go out there and kick ass. So, you know, I mean, it's, that's, that's, that's like in Ronnie James Dio territory as far as superhuman. So, um, so anyways, I, I think the chemistry of the band is very real. And that's what drew me into it. I mean, I was asked, you know, to do weekend work at first when I first joined the band, it was like, ah, oh, it's just going to be weekend warrior. And I thought, okay, that's perfect. You know, that's great. But as soon as we started playing, the chemistry kind of developed a momentum of its own. And within a couple months, you know, it was a full-time gig and has been ever since. And that's the chemistry. And, you know, it starts with Mick because Mick is just such a wonderful musician. I mean, on so many levels, not only, I mean, his writing is pretty obvious, his guitar playing, there's something about his guitar playing that I just love. And, you know, the way, the way he plays rhythm just totally gets me off. And 
when we started, you know, the, the, the rhythm, the core rhythm of, of Mick and Jason Bauman and I really, it was really powerful and it felt really great. And I think it invigorated us all into, you know, pushing forward. And then when Kelly joined, it's like, okay, now we're serious. And now we've got this amazing group of bands. Chris Frazier plays great drums. Michael Bluestein, what an incredible keyboard player. I mean, the feel that he has on the keyboards is so perfect for this band. Um, Bruce Watson has been a godsend. You know, he's able to step back when Mick's there. And then when Mick's not there, he's able to step forward and just carry all that weight. That's incredible. And then Tom Gimble, his talent is, you know, needs no one to speak about it because it's so, so great. Um, so the, the chemistry of the band is, I mean, it's a combination of quality players, but people that really love the music, that really listen to each other. It's kind of a miraculous group of people when, when we think, I mean, we talk about this sometimes. It's like, wow, do we realize how lucky we are? We do. Yeah. We pinch each other a lot. And, and here's what's even more remarkable. It's that you're dealing with these iconic songs, these songs that have been in people's brain since they were teenagers and when you hear urgent and you hear double vision these are not b-sides that somebody heard somewhere down the road so to to redo those ones and keep it authentic and keep the memory alive and have fans go yeah this is just as good as the original is remarkable because those albums were all top five albums they weren't top 40 or top 100 they were major albums and the fact that that you can deliver them with authenticity and, and have people buy into it is remarkable because a lot of bands can't yeah. do that and, and you can't do that yeah. um let me just ask you it's this it's a genuine Justin. love of the music i mean we genuinely love the music and we genuinely love the vision that mick has always had for the band so it's not like it's work it's like it's a labor of love and that's the difference i think so so let me ask you this about you personally though cuz you were doing dio you were in dokken you, you were sort of more closely associated with the heavy metal scene, even though if you look back on it now, I don't think anybody would call Dawkin heavy metal or anybody would call Kiss heavy metal <laughs> or anybody would call Alice Cooper heavy metal, right. though back in those days we all did. Right, sure. Were you somewhat worried about your own brand? Like, okay, if I go do sort of an AOR band or a more melodic rock or a more me- – like, was there any of that where you sort of said, okay, is is this the right move for me? Because you, like you said, it was a weekend warrior thing. It wasn't supposed to be the next 15 years of your life. Was there some <laughs> trepidation about I'm a heavy metal guy going – Anything like that? No, no, and okay. I'll, no, and I'll tell you why. Because as soon as we started playing, that was part of what was so great about the chemistry. Is we were a heavier live band than you would ever have expected Foreigners to be. Um, and it, to me, there's not that big a difference between Dokken and Foreigner as far as heaviness level. You know, I mean, Mick, Mick has a way of playing rhythm. When he's playing rhythm, when he's playing electric guitar. He has a very heavy way of playing. It's kind of in the old school heavy way, like a Jimmy Page kind of thing, but it's very present and you feel it. And I totally get off on that. And, you know, you got to remember Foreigner was a band that a lot of the early 80s bands like Doc. And we kind of modeled ourselves after in some ways, as far as, you know, it was heavy rock, but it had these great songs and the big singing and all that kind of thing. Um, so for me, it was such a natural transition. And like I say, as soon as we started playing, my what I was thinking was, ha ha, wait till people get a load of us, you know, that that's more what I was thinking, like, wow, this is going to be this is going to shock people. And then when Kelly came into the picture, it's like, oh, unstoppable. Yeah, it really was. And and so so talk to me about that, because back in the day, 
being from those days, you were either a Dawkins fan or a Foreigner fan. You were either a White Snake fan or a Journey fan. You, right? There were all these sort of dichotomies, and and but now you look at the tours this summer that were exceptionally successful: <laughs> Foreigner and White Snake, Def Leppard and Journey. Journey. If yeah. this was 1987, and you said Journey's going to tour with Def Leppard. Fans would have said, what the f- are you talking about? <laughs> right, um, right. But, but they're right. in stadiums. <laughs> right. We just did a stadium show with them last night in San Francisco. Right. And you, did, and you did sheds, by the way, which, which was no, you know, yeah. that's not a walk in the park either, playing to yeah. 15, no, 20,000. No, no. um, yeah. Talk yeah. to me about the sort of the commonality in, in the music and, and these new packages that, are, that would not have been imagined 20, 30 yeah. years ago, but now make perfect, perfect sense. Yeah. Well, to me, it's always been like that. Just, I mean, I'm not trying to say I'm some prognosticator of the future or anything like that, but to me, the, the, a band like Whitesnake has always melted with the bands like Foreigner um, in the way that they do now. They always have, to me. I understand what the difference was 30 years ago, um, but Def Leppard and Journey are essentially doing the same thing. It's rock music with you know, great melody and, you know, great. If they're fun, uh, you know, there's a, there's a, there is a commonality that again, I've always seen, I could understand the differences that people saw, but they always seemed like very superficial, um, blocks. They didn't seem like the right. real thing. Right. Um, now MTV it feels like, generated, it's you know, right. Yeah. It's like how I felt when I heard Alice in Chains and people were calling it alternative music. I'm like, it's rock music, you know, it's nineties rock music, you know, it's like, you, okay, you can call it alternative all you want. You can give it any kind of name you want, but you know, they obviously listened to black Sabbath records, you know? So it's like, you know, it's rock music, you know, that's, it's the same way I felt about that. Yeah. And, and it's just, it's, it's just amazing to see these barriers. Now uh, you did, or foreigner does have an album coming out or the last time I checked, you did the, the live album, Sort of this live reunion album that was done. It was in Michigan, I believe, right? Was Correct. Um, is yeah. that so? Is that still coming out? Talk to me a little bit about that's that. coming out. We there's oh. well, you know, here's the thing. We've had more life out of the orchestral record that came out in May than we would have anticipated, just because it's 2018 and you don't anticipate records to have a long life. Great record, but we've gotten such. Thank you. And and it's been such an international acceptance of this record. I mean, you, you're aware that we're going to Australia in October to do a tour with an orchestra um, of all of Australia. We're, we're doing the Sydney Opera House with an orchestra. I mean, how cool is that? Beyond cool. And, and part of that is the fact that this record has, I mean, it was number one on the classical charts here for several weeks. Uh, it's been recognized all over the world. Our managers are flying to Shanghai in a few weeks to talk with some heavy duty people there. I mean, there's talk of us taking this to China. I mean, there's all sorts of amazing stuff in the works. And, um, if, and, and that's, so again, that record has had much more life than we even realized. And, um, so, so there was no rush to put out the reunion record. I would imagine it'll be sometime early next year. Um, but again, we're, you know, there's, there's been no date put on it just yet because, we don't want to take any momentum away from this orchestral record, which has done so well. It has done exceptionally well. And, and, I, and I say this not in a disparaging way, but you cannot walk into a Walmart anywhere without seeing it on a shelf. And to me in 2018, 
that's remarkable. You, you know, I've been yeah. up and down the East Coast and the West and all summer, and whenever I would walk in, right in the sort of video game, whatever, that orchestral record was there. And I, every time I had the same thought, I said, that's amazing, the, the placement mm-hmm. that this record is getting in this mm-hmm. day and age. And so, and it's a, it's a great yeah. record. Now, were you the musical director on that? Did you sort of come up with a different arrangement? Yeah, and I, I produced, and I produced the record. No, I didn't, I wouldn't say I came up with the arrangements. Um, that was, that was more with uh, Dave Egger, who is the orchestrator on the record and Mick, they kind of did that uh, in, in, at Mick's apartment in New York. And then Dave would go, go home and, you know, work it all out. Um, I, you know, I got involved once we started rehearsing it and we sure made changes and everything, but I have to give the credit to Dave Egger for that. Dave Egger is just unbelievable. He's a phenomenal talent, a great guy, um, and really understood what Mick wanted out of this whole thing and really, really turned it into something that's beautiful and melodic, but still rocks. And that's what we wanted. And he did an amazing job. He did an amazing job. Now, since it still has legs, though, do we still see this sort of reunion slash current band album come out before Christmas or is it now pushed to 2019? I don't think before Christmas. I think it'll be 2019. Um, okay. You know, there's also a DVD with that too. So there's, you know, there's, it, it, it's good. It deserves its own big launch. Let's put it that way. Um, and uh, I don't think that'll be by the end of this year. Uh, in fact, I'm pretty sure it won't be, um, but it'll be great when it gets there. We are doing four more shows with the original members, which we're really looking forward to. Um, yeah. And, yeah, the and head games be, lineup, as I like to call it. It's it's the head games lineup, yeah. as I like to call yeah, um, it. Yeah, right. that's so right. Let, so let me quickly talk to you about that, because I'm going to come see one in December, which is, I'm you know, it's like Christmas well, now. Him, uh, yeah, I'm counting the days. You know, I've got like whatever, you know, 80 sleeps left to go. We're, that, that level of excitement. Um, oh, cool. Right? But talk to me about that, because it, it is an original concept uh, to see two bands meld together. And I've seen other bands talk about it. Um, you know, I've heard Kiss maybe mention something like that. The the heavy metal band Halloween has done something like that. And and to me, it all came from Foreigner. I think you're the sort of, <laughs> you spawned this sort of idea that it's okay to stand on the stage with Kelly and Lou or, you know, Gene Simmons and yeah. whoever. Yeah. And it, it's okay. <laughs> Um, so talk, yeah. <laughs> yeah, talk to me about it. And of well, course, you worked with Lou back in 97. You did those three Led Zeppelin songs, um, Black Dog, uh, Stairway to Heaven, and the, the other one, um, Heartbreaker? Well, I, I didn't work with him personally. So, okay. um, yeah, but, uh, you know, the thing is, um, yeah, that's what's amazing is that we can do it. I mean, not a whole lot. I mean, a lot of bands, I think, would have a difficulty um, on the ego level. And everybody in this band is really cool. Um, and you know, it all started because Mick on the 40th anniversary wanted to include the guys, you know, that was, that was like, you know, they should be part of this. Uh, and we all said, yeah, that would be great. And then it turned out both bands got along really well. I mean, you know, we go have dinner together, we go hang out. They're great guys. I mean, like really, really great guys. Um, and, 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 you know, we all have such amazing respect for them. They were, they were, I mean, they, they were a seminal band for me. I, I love corner i was i you know i thought wow these are great songs great singing great guitar playing great playing from everybody great arrangements unique you know great recordings i mean they were they were a band that meant something to me so um being able to befriend these guys and then get up on the stage with them 
it's really cool. And I think they appreciate the fact that we go out and spend a hundred plus days a year, you know, playing their music and, and spreading the word of what they did, because, you know, it's only enhancing their legacy as well. So, um, it's a pretty cool situation. And like I say, I give credit to Mick for being cool and kind of instigating it. And then it kind of took on a life of its own. And how cool is that? Like it's you say, a, how many bands w- would actually be able to pull it off? Not many, because there's a lot of bands where they threw the guys out, and all you hear is how they badmouth each other for the last 20 years, and so they couldn't do it. So th- this, it, it's remarkable. And of course, you know, to see the original band come out and do Blue Morning and Long, Long Way From Home and stuff, and then have you guys come out and do Urgent and Star Rider, it, it's great. So there are these four more shows. Is it is it finite, in, as you know this thing that we do we do it these four more shows and then we say okay it's been done and we move on or is this something that you'd like to we're already looking to 2019 and we'd like to do you know one show a month two shows a month a run of 10 shows you know you know what's really funny about that um yeah. we we haven't really talked about it at all um i don't know if there is going to be many in 2019 and it's only because um we you know we sort of have a conscious um strategy for how we want to deal with 2019 and a lot of it has to do with europe so um it it just may not be we we may end up doing some in 2019 not sure but it's so far it's kind of the the way it's taken place is that um it just kind of happens you know somebody makes us this ridiculous offer and we go yeah it sounds great so it's it's not like there's a lot of there's not like a whole big forethought about how it's going to be presented it just it just sort of happens which is actually the best way um because so often when you make plans things change anyway (laughs) right so it's worked out quite well um so i to answer your question there may i i actually hope there is more because we love working with these guys we have so much fun um but uh but i have there's nothing concrete yet for next year yeah and and of course I'll, i'll speak from from my own fan perspective I would love to see you not necessarily make an album of new material because I know that's very labor intensive and you got to write the songs and and that's, but you know, to have sort of a duets album where, where Kelly and, and Lou trade off licks on, on urgent and, you know, just something, I think that right. would be, that would be somewhat intriguing. Uh, are we already talking about packages for next year? I know, I know you can't spill beans, but are we already looking at you and journey next year or you and Def? I mean, is, are we already, well, I, that- I'll tell you right now, I, what I will tell you is we are already looking at a very extensive European festival calendar and that's wow. almost in stone. I can't, I don't want to go into the specific details, but, um, but we're going to be in Europe for a while next summer. And that's, that's a big focus of next year is the festivals in Europe. So that yeah. I can tell you. And that's also bad news for me, unless I, I head my head over to Europe, I guess. That's, uh, that's terrible. No, no, it's great news. Uh, and it's those festivals, by the way, the, that whole European festival mentality is, is very, very unique and very, very, very special. Um, before we wrap up here, I just want to get one sort of looking back kind of moment. The first time I saw Dawkins was, of course, at the Montreal Forum, opening for Aerosmith on the Permanent Vacation Tour. Um, I'm trying to think when that was, like October of 87 or something like that, maybe October of 88. Uh, just talk to me about those days and, and, and being on that bill and, and, and just that moment of being a young kid full of sort of 
whatever verve or piss and vinegar, piss and, vinegar. And, just, and just yeah right <laughs> piss and vinegar and, and just sort of trying yeah. to conquer the world and trying to win over diehard Aerosmith fans and just that whole you know slope on your on the way up sure. of, of your career well you know what's funny is one of the things that really stands out in my mind about that tour is that was the first time you know we had been opening for bands since we'd started you know four years before that um you know since we started touring and that was the first time it really felt like okay now we're up there we're in the we're in with the big leaguers you know not just because we're playing with Aerosmith but you could really feel the, the place was jam packed from the minute we started so we knew we were a big draw on the bill um and we were at our full power i mean i i still will see occasionally see bootlegs from that tour and that was that was the best stock ever was in the 80s we were that was that was a high point as far as the quality as far as what we were delivering on stage. It was really, it was really pretty damn good. Um, and I, so I, I, I look at that in a way as our, our peak in the eighties and, um, which of course, then we turn around and during that tour decide to break up, but well, <laughs> yes, Dawkins can never be accused of being, too smart for our own good. Just situate me real quick, though. By the time that you were on that tour, was back in the past, not back for the attack. Was it out or was it about to come out? It came. It came out three weeks into our well, into the tour. I, okay, see. It's three weeks into the. Well, I, it might have even come out right at the beginning of the tour. I, what I do remember is that it only took three weeks to go platinum, and it went platinum before the Aerosmith record went platinum, uh, that they were a permanent vacation. So we were on a roll at that point. We were, you know, we were, we could do no wrong. And, it, you know, we were kind of, I think we would, I think most people would acknowledge that at that point, we were kind of the premier opening band in the country, kind of really sort of could have been a headliner, but we were waiting until the right moment. Um, I agree. Which, which is part of the irony of us breaking up when we did, of course. but. Um, but yeah, we, uh, it felt great to answer your question. <laughs> it felt really great. I mean, it was, you could feel the power that the band had, the draw that we were, um, you could feel the forward momentum. Um, and it was very, very exciting. It's just too bad. We got in our own way and screwed it all up. <laughs> yeah, it really is. And, and you look at, at, at the album, you had the, uh, Steve Thompson, Michael Barbiero team on it and, and they were, you, you know, they don't get talked about dudes. They they were seminal to that whole era in sound. Yeah. I mean, people always talk about Bruce Fairburn or or this or you know this producer or that producer. Yeah. But what those two guys did to tweak albums was spectacular. Yeah, you know, especially Steve. Yeah, it really was. And and, and the I still GNR talk, record, of course. Yeah, and the GNR, and I still talk to Steve. He, he's he's great guy. You know, just a great great. Yeah, he's a really nice guy. And very, I'm assuming very, very nice since Barbiero was a talented talented engineer, way talented engineer. Um. No question. Yeah, no, they were they were great. I mean, we were we were in a great position. We were we were at the like I say, we were in the in the big leagues at that point, and it felt like it, and it felt really good. And then you figured, let's just go home because it's too good, <laughs> right? You just, we'll just give it up and go home. And and it's, it's oh, amazing. And That's the a whole other phone call would happen, but you know, yeah, yeah. And the <laughs> honestly, the only other band that I would say was in the same Premier League as you for opening might have been Tesla. Tesla was also sort of firing mm -hmm. on full cylinders, but you two were it. If if it was you know Tesla and Def Leppard or Tesla and and Motley Crue or Dawkins and Aerosmith. 
you knew that it wasn't an hour and a half of fun. You knew you were getting a three-hour event yeah, that night, yeah. and and you know, well, good times. Exactly. Anyway, anyway, the end, of course, or the end of machine, I should say, comes out in I guess 2019. Um, yep. End of March. End of March. The the Foreigner album, 2019 for the live album. Will you be recording any of the, uh, the Australian ones for for release, or is that just we'll tour and not not. Solely no for that, but um, but uh, there will be there will be some film footage of that that will end up somewhere. I guarantee you that. Well, I can tell you. Anyway, you're you're having way too much fun. That, that's all I can see. It's, yeah. it's <laughs> you know, for for somebody who who joined Foreigner for Weekend Warrior, and here you are, almost 15 years later. It's the endless it's weekend. The endless weekend, right? It's like it's like a weekend at Bernie's that that just doesn't end. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But oh, always weekend a pleasure. Weekend mixed. <laughs> weekend at mix yeah always a pleasure and of course we'll see you in december that that's going to be spectacular as as always well the thank four, you Looking the white snake and, and god i'm going to sound like a suck up but but that foreigner white snake show in june it was mind-blowing and of course let's not forget yeah, jason let's bonham not forget jason bonham right, on there either right let's not forget jason that was that and the Def Leppard uh, show that I saw at, at Fenway Park with Journey, those were the two premier shows this year. When I when I look back oh, at my summer, you. I go, glad I didn't miss that one. Glad I didn't miss that one. The, that was well, solid, you. solid entertainment. Uh, anyway, there you go. Well, thank you, thank you. Yeah, Mer- it felt great. Merci well, beaucoup. Mitch, thanks as always. Absolutely. <laughs> and and uh, keep in touch and uh, send me the links and we'll make sure that this gets out there where it should be. <laughs> Merci, monsieur. Have a good day. Cheers. Thank you. You, you too, Mitch. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. And, of course, a very big thank you to Jeff Pilsen, of course, the band with George and Mick and Robert Mason. will have a new album out in 2019. So stick around for that. And, yes, the live Foreigner album that was recorded with the the original members is out hopefully by Christmas. So a lot of new Jeff infused music coming your way, but let's get over to, of course, the one and only Marty Friedman, formerly of some band, but now with his own band, uh, Mr. Niven, that features a guitarist named Jordan Zift, which you know very well. Do explain. Yeah. Well, Ziffy, um, we recorded with Ziffy with with a band called Razor, and uh, he was a disca- discovery of uh, Chris Catero, um, who used to do uh, used to work at Crank back in the day and had his own band and um, I think it's called War Dog or War Peace or War Something. Yeah, Chris will be upset with me. I can't remember the name of the band, but. Um, he formed a band called Razor and, and brought in Ziffy to play. And I was really delighted because he reminded me a lot of Michael Schenker. Um, but he had an American feel to him. Um, one of the things that I still can't quite comprehend about um, Mike, Mike Schenker is that he plays with feel, but with within a precision that is extraordinary. Um, and Ziffy's just just slightly looser in his feel, but 
very similar in his articulation and his note choice. He's a really good player. And Marty took him on tour to Japan and I think asked him to play on an album after that. And of course, Siffy is now, um, if you want to go and see Jordan play, he's out with Rat. So um, I think he's out there. I think he's pouring um, Jack Daniels for Piercy during the show so that Stephen can keep his throat lubricated. And between pouring Jack Daniels for Piercy, he's, uh, he's actually playing playing those uh, rat songs with with some gusto and some fire. Yeah, you know, the the rat stuff, and I've seen the videos, and, and we won't talk about the ones where Stephen has had the bad nights, but the ones where you're just focused on the music, the band sounds great. Uh, I do think that, unfortunately, Jordan is not going to like to hear this, but I think Jordan and the other guitarists do need to get more into the show in terms of, you know, having stage costumes and stuff, coming out and, and with a, 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 a shirt, a lumberjack shirt around your waist. I mean, just no, don't do that. That's a hor- not, That's not Jordan, it's the other guy. But what a horrible look for, for an, an 80s band or a glam band or for, for anybody putting on a show. I mean, be a little more creative in your presentation. My apologies in advance for hurting feelings, but... Well, you know, at the end of the day, it's how well do they play the songs and are they present and, you know, do you feel like you really connected with the band and their performance? So, you know, I don't worry that much about somebody having a lumberjack shirt on. I mean, there was a whole bunch of bands out of Seattle who relied on lumberjack shirts. Mm, Yeah, don't remind me. Anyway, um, Marty, of course, the new album is called One Bad MF Live, and it is certainly something to check out. Now, Marty here and I, we we only had about 20 minutes on the phone, and that was my own doing. I had a meeting that I had to get to, and we could only do it at 8 o'clock in the morning because of the time difference between Montreal and Japan. And I had an 8.30 meeting, and it was just like, well, we're on the clock. Let's get this going. But a lot of great content. Marty, of course, talks about KISS and the end of the road tour so we got those comments so uh, here he is the one and only guitarist extraordinaire formerly of we are speaking with guitarist marty freeman the new album is one bad mf live recorded in mexico um marty talk to me about this album because what i find spectacular or amazing about it, it is that it was recorded at one show the last show on the tour um was that a little scary, knowing that if something went wrong, either technically or one of the band members was ill, that there was sort of like no backup plan in a sense? It, it's talk to me about that. Well, um, now, now that you, I'm glad you didn't say that before we did it, because then I would have worried. Um, but uh, no, it was uh, really not worried about anything like that because I knew I had a great engineer. I had Chris Rakestraw who did my Inferno album, so I knew. Recording was going to be great. The studio was fantastic. Um, you know, the remote recording studio and the venue was fantastic. Great sounding venue. So, uh, you know, bar any kind of act of God, it was going to get recorded that day. And uh, the band had been on tour for a while and we were just uh, tearing it up every night. And, and you know, there's always a little special thing at the last day of a tour, you know, a special emotional feeling and and you know you're glad that it's over but you're kind of sad that it's over and that kind of adds to uh whatever happy accidents might happen during the set and 
you know, there's a lot of ad living going on. There's a lot of, uh, you know, having fun with the audience and, uh, you know, I, I like the pressure, I guess I I did a live album before. Um, I think it was in 2007 or eight and uh, we did actually tape about five or six shows and after it was all done, I had to sift through all that stuff and pick the best performances and make a live album out of that. And, um, probably because I remember doing that is why I just wanted to say, let's just do one show and get it over with because I remember weeding through stuff and, you know, at the end of the day, I got all the best performances, but it was just a lot of extra work when probably should have just recorded one show and called it a day. So I'm really glad we did it this way. Yeah. And it turned out great. Now, did you go back and and do some post-production and fix stuff or is this as live as live can be warts and all? This is totally live. The only thing that we did was cut things out. Um, we cut out uh, a bunch of songs because our set was two hours long and we had to make it fit onto two LPs. And uh, so uh, we cut a bunch of stuff out and we shortened some things. But, uh, you know, uh, we didn't really fix anything. Um, if it was fixed, it might have been fixed in, in mixing with a, a, a balance type of thing. But uh, nothing was replayed and it's all the audience from that show. And um you can hear when you hear the record. I mean, it's it's warts and all for days on that thing. I mean, it's definitely not perfect. There's tempo issues. There's there's a lot of playing stuff that is not nearly as tight as it would be on the studio record. But uh, that's what makes it sound like a live record. And uh, I just think it's a really good document. And that's all I was shooting for, really, is a, a document of what it would be like to see us play live or to hear us play live. And I think we got that pretty good. Yeah, and and I think that's what adds to this live album and other live albums is those little mistakes because they add charm. You know, when it's too perfect, as a listener, you're like, "Mm, that just sounds like way too, you know, that those mistakes add charm. Uh, In the press release, it says that this album is a tip of the hat to live albums that blew my mind when I was a kid. Uh, What are some of those albums that really blew your mind? I know I know you're a Kiss fan, so I'm assuming Kiss Alive must be one of them. Um, What are some of those albums that that blew your mind? Well, um, obviously, Kiss Alive, um, the ultimate live album. I mean, that's what really kind of did it for me. I heard that when I was a kid and it just really captured what it was like being at a kiss show. And, um, you know, you could just put it on your record player and and turn it up really, really loud. And you feel like you're at the arena in a concert, you know, I really, really dug it. And, um, obviously kiss alive and, uh, Frank Marino, mahogany rush live was a big one for me and Robin Trower and, uh, blue oyster cult and Peter Frampton. And, um, what else were the big live albums back then? Leonard Skinner, I guess. Um, yeah, you know, I was always ones. pissed off that Black Sabbath never put out a live album back then. I remember, I remember, why don't they do a live album? You know, and uh, maybe they did sometime down the line. But uh, I think when I was that age and just starting getting into music, I I really preferred live albums. Um, I always liked the live albums better than the studio records, and um, yeah, I started to feel like that's the way I wanted this live record to be. I kind of wanted to pace it really old school. You know, I'm not the biggest nostalgia guy in the world when it comes to my music. But I just remember that feeling of listening to live albums 
And I wanted to get that on my record. And it started to feel like that as we were playing, you know, touring and stuff. It started to be paced like how I remember the concerts when I was a kid. You know, it was a lot of audience, um, you know, give and take with the audience. There's a lot of like members of the band really shining. It's not all about me. You know, it's really all about everybody in the band and everybody reacting with the audience and talking, you know, talking is a, is a new thing for me too, because, uh, um, my first live album, the, the weakest point on it was the fact that I had to talk between songs and I was just definitely not any good at it. Not that I'm much better at it now, but I just feel like I have a much better, grip on you know keeping the audience involved with what i'm trying to do than i did on the first live record and that kind of stuff really feels old it feels old school you know when you listen back to the record and that's exactly the way i wanted it it, it feels really good yeah it really does and uh, you might enjoy this back uh, back in august of this year i sat on a tour bus with frank marino and zach wild and 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 talked for two hours and uh oh my god yeah and because frank's a local montrealer i you know i i call him whenever i need and he uh he's got a live dvd coming out uh next year yeah. and it's four hours long the show so, <laughs> <laughs> yeah and and, and oh, anyway wow. yeah and here's that's here's, awesome yeah and here's the fun part um the recording of the drums didn't come through in the live thing so that he had to go in studio and recreate every single drum beat. He said it took him over six years to do. <laughs> so, so how's that? That That's a good one. Oh my God. Right. That, I mean, that's, that's, that's the craziest thing I ever heard. It, it, it I is. I can't and, wait to hear it. Yeah. And, and someday I'll have to get you and, uh, and Frank on the phone. Cause he's such, such a great guy. Um, Oh, he, He's fantastic. He's a, he's he's absolutely fantastic. Um, let yeah. me quickly talk to you about this uh, Japanese or sorry, the Japan Heritage theme song that you did with the Tokyo Philharmonic Orchestra. You of course worked with sure. them back in 2010, um, mm. and of course this song. And correct me if I'm wrong here, but it was done as part of a um, uh, uh, what was I going to say? A Israeli embassy. Anyway, well, oh no, this is a completely different. Oh, okay, two different this, songs. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. So, so see, that's why you're correcting me when I'm wrong. But okay, talk to me about though about the the song and working with the Philharmonic because you did perform with them eight years ago. Yes. Talk yeah, to I've me about that challenge. Right. Yeah, uh, I've done plenty of things with the uh, with the Tokyo Philharmonic here in Japan, and um, I was uh, I don't know if the word is elected or anointed. I don't know what the word is in English, but I was. Uh, Appointed? Uh, appointed, there you go. It's so weird. My English is just really sucking. It's really, really a bummer. Words don't come up. The word comes up in Japanese first, and I'm like, oh, wow. But anyway, I was, uh, what did you just say? Appointed um, an ambassador ambassador of Japan Heritage um, about a year and a half ago. And uh, so I do some um, embassy-related things in Japan and also in other countries, and uh, I did a big uh, event for the Japan Embassy in Buenos Aires, and I did some stuff in Kyoto. And um, the the I'm trying to think of the word in English. I don't. I, it's not coming up. The Ministry of Cultural Affairs. That's the word. Correct. Of the Japanese government, the Ministry of Cultural Affairs asked me to create um, a Japan Heritage theme song. And what Japan Heritage is. It's like um, they choose parts of Japan 
or cultural things, and they elect these things as Japanese heritage sites or concepts or pieces of art or whatever. And uh, there's like 40 of them in existence, and all of the cities in Japan are vying to be elected into this type of thing. And it's really a big deal over here, and uh, especially with the Olympics coming up. They want to get the people who are coming to Japan to see a lot of the amazing, amazing things that uh, are not the typical common things that everybody comes and sees the first couple of days they see in Japan. They, they come to Japan. So anyway, make a long, long story short, they wanted me to create a song that um, could be played at further events having to do with Japan heritage and to be uh, put in school uh, school books for kids to learn how to play and possibly put lyrics to and just basically create a Japanese, a new, not necessarily a folk song, but a theme song for this Japan heritage thing. And um, I was beyond honored to do it. And then they said, we'd like you to collaborate with uh, Tokyo Philharmonic to do this. And uh, so I did. And uh, here's the catch. You have five days to put it together. <laughs> Um, because we have this event coming up and we want to uh, um, we want to premiere the song at this event if you could possibly do it. So I was literally up 24 hours a day for five days and made this arrangement and wrote it, produced it, uh, arranged it. Um, and I had someone write all the musical parts for the orchestra to play. And we went into the studio and banged it out. And um, I'm so pleased with it. And um, it's not going to be released or anything. It's You can listen to it for free on the Internet and, I guess, download it. But uh, it's a piece of music that I'm super, super proud of. And um, and uh, I'll probably play it at some point, you know, live if I have the right uh, um, band type of thing. You know, I'll need strings and piano and, and uh, orchestral instruments. But it's uh, something I'm really, really happy with the way it came out, a huge challenge and it's just a, a, it's a Marty, it's a Marty highlight as far as I'm concerned. It's something I'm really, you know, it, it's one of those things that I, I, I'm glad that I was asked to do and I'm glad it came out okay. Yeah, and it, and it's, it's interesting that, you know, as somebody who moved to Japan, that they've, they've embraced you as much as you've embraced Japan and they and here you are making sort of the official you know, I don't want to say diplomatic song, but, you know, sort of the official theme song for, for their embassy events. It's it's interesting. It's it, it blows my mind. It blows my mind because I'm a foreigner. You know what I mean? I'm a foreigner. Um, the other people who are um, appointed to be uh, um, the ambassadors to Japan Heritage are people like uh, the baseball player Matsui and um, Carrie Pamu Pamu and some very famous chefs over here and people like that. I mean, Japanese people, you know, I'm the only person who's not Japanese. So it's just beyond my, you know, beyond what anything I would have thought of before I came here. And it's just, uh, it's an honor. And, uh, it's something I'd probably be doing anyway, because, you know, wherever I go, people ask me about Japan and, and I try to tell them things that you don't necessarily find in the tour books and just try to, you know, be a diplomatic guy, as all people in foreign countries should do anyway. You know, I think it's it's nice, you know, because when I'm in Japan, I represent America to some extent. You know, people look at me and that's what they think of America because I'm American. And when I'm outside of Japan, people look at me as 
someone who lives in Japan, what's Japan like? You know, so I, I get to uh, be on both sides. Yeah, and 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 I think you, anybody should talk uh, well of an adopted country. It's it's you know, um, you have and correct me again if I'm wrong, but over 700 television credits uh, for for music and other things in in Japan. Talk to me about the challenges, uh, or maybe not the challenges, but just talk to me about making music that is very specific to a TV show or a movie, and not for an album, not for necessarily for live performance. Yeah, I'm not really so much involved in making music for TV and movies, although I do. But uh, I've been on TV like 700 times, okay, or more, more. You know, I, I do, I do a lot of television programs, um, from everything from, of course, musical stuff, but uh, talk shows, chat shows, game shows, even political stuff, which is definitely not my forte, and even some cooking shows and comedy shows and. Um, Okay, and so then culture shows and any kind of program, you know, any kind of program I've probably done several of them. Okay, so let me um, let me go this way then, because you have, of course, uh, you are a Kiss fan, and Kiss did work with Memori Memorial Moiro Clover. Yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. See, yeah. I, I'm very not uh, able to say that. Uh, it's all right. But and and in 2012 at Midem, the the great uh, thing in France, you, you gave a speech about J-pop. Talk to me about working right. with that band, and were you yeah. involved at all in that song that Kiss did with them, or just talk to me about working with them and and the whole J-pop movement? Right. Okay. Um, Momoiro Clover is. Uh, it's a unit of um, now it's four girls. It was five at the time that I worked with them, but they are just the ultimate, ultimate concept idol singing group. And I use that term very loosely because they do so much more than singing. Um, each song is like a really big kind of masterpiece of production and arrangement and just very wild music. Um, I did a song called Mugen No Ai, um, and I forgot what year it was. But 2012, it was like Christmas there of 2012. See? There you go. There you go. I, I like that. In, I got it in front I of me. That. I did that, and um, it was a big coup because they were just, they were big, but like when that song hit, it, 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 it really brought them into a new level of just massive stadium, stadium appeal. And um, not that it's, because of me, it's because the great producer of that song, a guy named Hyadain, just did a fantastic arrangement and wrote that song. And I played guitar and working with a great producer was just a thrill for me. So um, this song, it was just like, I like to call it the Bohemian Rhapsody of idol music. Because if you listen to it, there's a hundred piece choir on it. There's me playing guitar like in pretty much typical Marty fashion, you know, it's, there's a lot of Martyisms of the guitar on it. And, and the arrangement has all kinds of time signature changes, tempo changes, unusual harmonies and counterpoints. And yet it's five cute girls singing. <laughs> and then all of a sudden there's this long haired rock dude playing this blazing guitar on top of it. And so it's one of those only in Japan moments, but uh, they just, do crazy things. They take risks and they do wild musical things that uh, you wouldn't think of from, you know, some teenage girls. 
And, and then uh, after that, they did um, they did a collaboration with Kiss. Yep. A couple years after that, which was and they've uh, they've also done collaborations with other major Japanese artists as well, and um, even folk singers. I mean, it's completely off the charts what they do. I mean. It's really hard to explain it in words. Just look up Momoito Clover Z and um, yeah, maybe uh, search my name with it or search it just without my name and you'll find a whole bunch of other really, really cool stuff. And even people who are not into hard rock or pop or anything like that probably find some appeal with it because the, the production is just so unique and so fun. And uh, I can't say enough good things about them. Yeah, absolutely. And and what I'll do when we're done here is I'll I'll tweet out a link to the video because it, it was it did debut at number five, so it is a top ten uh, hit in Japan. Um, Kiss recently announced their farewell tour, their their the end of the road tour. Um, first of all, talk to me a little bit if you can, if I can get a quote about that. Is it sad to see some of our heroes sort of pack it in and say enough's enough? And does it at some point lead to you thinking? Do I retire? Do I, you know, what are sort of your plans moving forward in terms of when do you stop and say it's time to just to sit home and, and watch the plants grow? Uh, hopefully never. I mean, okay. uh, I can't think of anything I'd rather do than play music for people. And so as long as I'm able to do that and as long as I'm able to continue making what I consider to be better music than I did the year before, the month before, then I'm going to keep doing it. And um, I think had I stopped at any point, I probably would have rotted <laughs> because um, that's just what I do. I do that just like you brush your teeth, you play music, you know, it's really like that. Um, as far as uh, Kiss, um, you know, saying it's a farewell tour, you know, that's really up to them and they've given way way more than you could ask of anybody and they've gone far beyond the call of duty of any band so many decades um i have nothing but appreciation appreciation for what they've given to my life and to other people and just knowing that they're there and you know the first couple concerts I saw when I was a kid just absolutely blew my mind and set me off on a musical path, which I'm very thankful for. And then when I saw him again on the reunion tour, it was like some other people can probably share this feeling. It was like watching a friend who had died come up from the grave and be living again. It was so weird. Um, I don't know if that's the nicest way to put but, it. But. but so great. I mean, like you, I saw 11 reunion shows, 11 for Christ's sakes. And yeah. and it was spectacular to, to that. It was hard to, to recapture that youthful innocence we had because, you know, I first saw them in 79. I don't know when you first. In fact, when, when did you first see them? Right around then. I saw them maybe 76 or 7. Oh, lucky bugger. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> rock and roll over. Imagine seeing rock and roll over. You're like 12 or 13 and you see rock and roll over. You know, that's going to mess you up, dude. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, well, the dynasty. Tour. Go ahead. I mean, I'll, I'll give you a quote about Kiss. I mean, they were so incredibly great at that time. And what I mean, this is just my opinion, but between the two live albums, Kiss and Kiss Alive 2, they were so unbelievably great that 
if even a fraction of that magic still existed now, it's worth checking out. And I think that's why they still are worth, it's still worth it to keep playing because what they had was so incredibly magical at that time that it just will never die. I mean, it's one of those things. I mean, of course, things are different. Times are different. They play different songs. They play, you know, technologies, different players are different. Things are a little bit different. But when I saw them in that reunion show in the 96 at Madison Square Garden, I swear to God, you know, if you just, you don't even have to blur your eyes a little bit. You just open your eyes and you were there in that super, super magic magical moment you know and it was just an amazing thing and i think that magic period of time between kiss alive and kiss alive 2 has allowed them to uh continue to spread that to different extents to many many generations and i have nothing but appreciation appreciation for the work that they've put into doing that because they could have stopped anytime and just hang out in hawaii or whatever, and just uh, had an easy life, but they still working it. And, you know, I have nothing but appreciation and the highest regard for people who work like that. Yeah, and, and I can agree with that, because you, you are very right with the image they created. You know, they could have merchandised and T-shirted it to, to, to death while they sat in Hawaii, like you say, and yet mm. they still made new albums. They still got out and toured. They still did special events and charity events. I mean, f fans, we, we love to complain, but when you look at it, who else has done what they've done in 45 years to the extent they've done anyway? Uh, Marty, a great, great pleasure. I do have a uh, another thing to coming up in a couple of minutes, so I have to go. All good. But, but thank you for today, and uh, we, spoke, My pleasure. Uh, we spoke about Wall of Sound. Uh, I, was it earlier this year? I guess last year. And so that was a great conversation. So thank you for that. And uh, anytime, pleasure. looking forward to doing this again soon. And uh, there you go. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you, sir. Right, man. Have a good Take one. Take care, Mitch. Cheers now. See ya. Bye-bye. Bye. Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. Big thank you to Marty Friedman. And uh, thank you, folks, for for sticking in on this sort of super deluxe edition version of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon here on Westwood One. And, uh, you know, um, what do you think of, if I can call him, your boy playing with Marty? Uh, I, was, I was thrilled for him um, because, you know, Ziffy's young. And for him to get a nod from somebody like Marty and for Marty to take him out was an acknowledgement of his abilities and also, I was really happy because he would learn very quickly a lot of uh, professionalisms with Marty, which is what happened. And, um, you know, if you're looking around and you can find it, uh, check out his playing on the Razor record. Uh, if, if you like, you know, standard heavy rock and roll, it's there. You know, that Razor record... I think there was a couple of videos made and stuff. The album itself was never released or was released very limitedly, right? Well, in point of fact, we didn't get around to releasing it because we couldn't find a good distribution platform. So we said, let's put it on the shelf until we do. And we've yet to find a good distribution platform. But one of these days, we're going to get the record out and, and get it to its audience. 
I've had a chance to hear it, and, and it really is worth checking out. Now, another thing, and this isn't uh, this came in the mail today. It is Buck and Evans. It is their new album called Write a Better Day, and you can of course check out buckandevans.com. And I mention it because you also have had a hand in that project. Well, Buck is Chris Buck, and my partner. Um, my wife um, discovered him when he was 16 years old um, playing in his bedroom Um, she came and asked me to watch what she had found on her laptop and of course you know being being a grumpy old know-it-all I went you know honey had you know a kid playing in his bedroom and of course Within 30 seconds of watching and listening to him, I had to bend over and pick up my jaw because it was obvious that he was exceptional. And it's not just my judgment or my opinion. Um, The readers of Total Guitar voted him in January um, best new guitar player in the world, which is, you know, now becomes a huge albatross around his neck. How do you live that? I live up to that and how do you live it down? But I do like to think, and we're talking about Ziffy, and we're talking about Chrissy Buck, and uh, there are one or two other guitar players that I've worked with. Um, I maybe have an affinity and an ear for good, expressive players. And Chrissy is, Chris Buck is really um, just one of the most incredible and marvelous players that I've ever worked with. We made a... uh, uh, a little solo record with him at one point to uh, progress him along, uh, and that's called Postcards from Capricorn, um, when he didn't have a band. Uh, but it's 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 a it's a worthy little record. And again, if you're into guitar players, you would do very well to find that record and check Chris out, or the upcoming Buck and Evans record, which. Um, we're doing a sort of very slow release, uh, and we're going to start putting uh, real effort into it in January. But in this day and age, there's no rush to push something out, and then it disappears. So we ha- we have a long-term strategy for this of, you know, putting out a track and getting it to tastemakers like yourself, and letting people get next to the material and next to the band, and seeing if. Uh, we can't find you know, a good home in a lot of homes for that record. Yeah, and I hope you do. And, and folks who, of course, listen to me are, uh, I don't want to say predominantly KISS fans, but there's a lot of KISS fans out there. He did a tribute. Uh, he, he played on the KISS tribute, uh, A World with Heroes, back in 2013. And he, he played on Sure Know Something as well as uh, The Oath. But the, the work on Sure Know Something and you can only hear it right now if you maybe if you go to YouTube it is for sale on on iTunes but there it's magical what he did to that song it, it turned it into sort of instead of this sort of throwaway pop song it turned it into this magical blues rock I don't even know how to describe it but it, it really it was a great job what he did there well, I kind of came out of the Capricorn record because the, the vocals on there and, and some of the performance come from Tony Montana, um, who we know as the um, 
bass player of the successful Great White years. Um, you know, and, and a lot of people don't realize that Tony actually went out and toured with Slash at one point. He played in Japan and the Far East and Australia and New Zealand with Slash. But Tony is, again, a terrific talent that I don't think many people appreciate how good he is yet. And he's not a bad guitar player himself. Um, he plays with Jack Russell at the moment. And, uh, you know, I think I mentioned to you last time we were doing the show, I actually went to see them play, which is the first time I've seen Jack Russell on a stage since 1995. And I was impressed with Tony's playing, and I was also impressed with the fact that Jack was present and giving of his heart and soul um, like he hasn't in a long time. Um, he's very definitely present and very definitely in, into performing. Yeah, and, and those great white songs require you to have that presence and have that warmth. And ha You can't go out and do those great white songs uh, like a robot. Uh, there's just... No. Uh, uh, but speaking no. of uh, bass players real quick, Pete Agnew, of course, in Nazareth, the new album is Tattooed on my brain and uh you know it is a fun fun rock record it has new singer carl sentence it is their first one with carl actually so you know here we are whatever it is 35 years 40 years 50 years maybe even into the career and they're bringing in a new voice it's a great challenge and i i hope for, for well, yeah you, you know i gotta say nazareth were one of those bands you know, the, what was the name of their original singer, McCafferty? Um, just an amazing Damn. voice. Yeah. And I don't know how many people know this or not, but um, another singer I know of, a guy called Axel, used to play Hair of the Dog while he was in the shower and try and mimic that sound as best he could. And... Manny Charlton was in the band back then in Nazareth, and some GNR people, especially those who had a thousand dollars, would know that Manny was um, co-producer, along with Tom Zootout, the A and R guy, of the original Guns N' Roses demos. So there's you know, a strong influence of vibe coming from Nazareth into GNR. Um, so if you tell me they've come up with a really good record, I'm not surprised at all. Yeah, no, they really have. And, and I hope and, uh, that fans out there, especially Nazareth fans that have been with the band for 10, 20, 30, 40 years, just say, okay, listen, Dan has retired. This is not a firing. There's no bad blood. They're still friends. Pete, in fact, plays on Dan's new solo album. So there's no bad blood. So go into it with like, an open mind and just give Carl a chance. He, he's he's done it live. The live shows have been great. Um, give him a chance. And Tattooed on My Brain is a, is a great little record. I mean, it really is. So, you know, check check that out. Um, and uh, how, how can I put this? You got to tip your hat to them for after 23 studio albums going, yeah, we're going to make a new record. And yes, we're going to change the singer. And yes, there's a certain courage in that, uh, I have to say. So, you know. Well, yeah, there's a, there's a courage that's undoubted. Uh, but there's also the aspect of sitting in front of the mirror and saying, what else am I going to do? Um, I like to, to tell people that I consider rock and roll like malaria. 
it's always in your blood. The only difference is whether you have a fever or not. But it sounds to me like Nazareth just caught a fever and people should catch it. Yeah, they really should. So here he is. Uh, I spoke to Pete um, hmm, probably like six months ago, did my first interview with him. And here is part two. We talked tattooed on my brain and their incredible box set that also came out uh, 50 some discs or 30 some discs or something the entire career. Check both of these things out. But first, check out the one, the only Pete Agnew. Mitch, just just before we get into talking to Pete and hear your conversation, yes, sir. I'm curious. Uh, this box set that Nazareth put together. Can you tell me how many discs are in it? Yeah. How much music is in it? And then let me know what the price is, because in this day and age of expensive box sets, I'm curious to see what the Naz did. Well, this uh, box set, which is actually called Loud and Proud is 39 discs, one, ladies and gentlemen. It is 23 original studio albums, four vinyl albums, 52-page, blah, 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 singles, bonus tracks. I mean, just it's, it's everything. And, uh, well, let me scroll down on the price. At uh, 39 discs, it's obviously going to be about $8,000, and it is retailing for a little under 230. In fact, the Amazon UK has it listed for 153 pounds wow <laughs> that that is amazing and that is fan friendly and fan respective and i completely take my hat off to the band for putting that package together and pricing it in that way well done nazareth wow that that is absolutely insane so just just real quick you got 23 original studio albums remastered original live Three CDs of singles, EPs, B-sides. Three CDs of rare and unreleased. Uh, wow. 52-page book. Uh, rep- reproduced original 1974 tour program, 79. Just it, That is insane. And that they keep it at a price that is really just giving it away. Well, it's not giving it away. I'm sure that they're you know seeing a little bit of profit on that. I mean... It costs less than a dollar to actually imprint a CD, but I love the fact that there's fan respect there, that it hasn't been priced in the stratosphere, uh, because, you know, not everybody has $1,000 for a box set. And here is one other little thing that I'm noticing here. 500 of them are signed by Pete Agnew and Dan McCafferty, and the first 500 that are ordered via the official Nazareth uh, web store, will be getting them signed by the two main principals. So, my lord, that, that that's like a big giant hug to your fan base right there. It certainly is. And, again, my hat's off. Mine too. And uh, with that, here is the one and only Pete Agnew. We do talk about the box set and, of course, their new album, Tattooed on My Brain. Voici Peter Agnew. We are speaking with Pete Agnew from the band Nazareth. Of course, the new album is called Tattooed on My Brain. It is out now. Uh, Pete, an absolute, absolute pleasure to talk to you once again. It is our second time. It's amazing how in 50 years of career, we had never spoken. And like in the last six weeks, we've spoken twice. (laughs) That's right. That's right. I think think we were actually, I think we just finished recording the album when I spoke to you. 
earlier yeah. in the year. Early I think we just finished then. Uh, yeah, yeah. So here we go. And we're talking in the week it come out. So great. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to this because, first of all, I've had a chance, obviously, since the album's out to, to hear it. There's a song particularly on there called Pole to Pole, which is just a great great rock song not not to say that the other ones aren't there's a lot of great rock songs but that one particularly spoke to me uh just a great thing so talk to me here as we are in our sort of 50th anniversary year about still making new music and having a new voice to it because we have of course got carl on this one mm-hmm. is it strange for you to hear nazareth music and not hear dan on it is it refreshing i mean you know without being dismissive of dan or without trying to be any kind of yeah, I know what you mean. I, no, right. no, with, I mean, I'm used to it now because, I mean, Carol's been with us for three and a half years now. Uh, so, you know, we're, we've been touring as, as if it's been forever, you know. But, I mean, obviously, uh, Dan, Dan's my best friend. He always will be since I was five years old. So, you know, I don't, uh, especially on the new album, I don't really think about uh, uh, in terms of Dan at all because well songs written by everyone uh, songs written by Carol as well uh, uh, everyone wrote in the album and and you know they were writing for this guy's voice and mind you know when you're writing you're thinking about the guy's going to be singing it so you know as a, 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 as I, I would just, I would say it was refreshing but I, I'm the same as you I'm not saying refreshing I'm glad that it's not Dan it's not like that at all you know um, We've got we've got used to hearing Carol singing. It was and even at first it was it was strange when Dan had to go at first. It was it was difficult to to get used to hearing somebody else singing the songs. But uh, we've kind of slipped into it. We've got past that stage now, you know. When you put together a new album like Tattooed on My Brain, and you've been around for fifty years, do do you approach it from the point of view of we know what a Nazareth song is and we got to make 10 songs or 12 songs that are exactly classic Nazareth. Or do you say, you know what? We've been around 50 years. We will do whatever we feel like doing and the fans can decide. So, you know, how do you approach it with it with fresh sort of a fresh perspective of you just make a song or do you sort of study the catalog and go, OK, no, a Nazareth song would have this kind of bass. Line no, have, we've never, okay. we're never, never, never did that on any record. That's what but that's what people liked about Nazareth because of the diversity of the band, because we never, ever, we never had a sound. Because we never did two tracks that were like the same. We always had. We took each song and we treat this. You look at the song and you say, "How does that have to be done to make that song sound good?" You know. And if you've got a a riffy thing, well, you look for the heavy rock kind of thing. If you've got tattooed in my brain, can I was looking for a kind of punk kind of vibe for that, and we've got that. Uh, We we're doing different different songs. You've got different approach. You take it. We don't take it album by album. We take it song by song. And so that's why the albums turn out they've got all these different things on them. So we've never really said. I mean, sometimes you look back and say we we could do one. You know the kind of vibe we got on that one, for instance. Like you know, we'd say sometimes the boy that what we'll in the studio they'll say, you know that bass part that you did in Messiah. Could we could we do something like that? But we're not talking about the whole song. We're talking about you know a way that or something that you played in it. You know, but not to make the song the same as that other song. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, let me quickly yeah. talk to talk to you about Dan, and I'll get back to this album in a second. Um, he has an upcoming solo album, which I believe is called Last Testament. You have contributed to it, unless my my information is wrong. Um, uh, we did, we did. Right, you did, yeah. right? Uh, yeah. Well, uh, kind of. Well, well did, let me just ask you about that. Since he is making a solo album and you're contributing to it. Um, 
talk to me about, for example, why you couldn't do Tattooed on My Brain with Dan as the singer, the studio singer, and then go out on the road with Carl. Um, obviously, oh, he has absolutely, the... absolutely not. Absolutely okay. not. We'd, okay. we'd never we never even considered doing that, and that neither would Dan actually. You know, but no, 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 no. We'd, we wouldn't have. We wouldn't consider that. But we're going to keep the band going. It had to be a band that everybody could see, you know, uh, that's making the record. Uh, and this last, uh, like I say, this since, since Carl's joined, he's got a legion of Nazareth fans now. You know, they've got, a, a, I mean, most, you can't please all the people all the time, but like 99% of the, the, the fans are coming along have taken to the guy and, the, you know, they've made him part of the band. So he is in Nazareth now and the, the, the record is made with him. He is the Nazareth vocalist now. So we wouldn't even have considered that. And when Dan, and, when Dan wanted to do this album that he's doing, uh, he did it in the same studio as as we did our album. In fact, he came along while we were recording. He, he, he listened, you know, to some of the tracks we did, and I was in there listening to some of the tracks he did. He went in just after us and was recording, and it was one track. It was it's an, well, it's, I'll tell you what it is. It's Sunshine. It's a song we did oh, many, many, many years ago on an album called That Rampant, and the producer wanted to do just a little version of it, just to stick it on the album, just him playing the piano and Dan and Dan singing Sunshine. And they just said, do you fancy getting Pete to stick the, the, the harmony on like he did on the original record? So Dan phoned me up and I was in the studio with 10 minutes after the phone call doing the, doing the vocals. So that's how that happened, you know. It was good. It was good fun. But no, we don't, we're not, um, you know, he's, he, he doesn't play in Nazareth anymore. He's the ex-Nazareth singer. He knows that and, and he fully appreciates that. And we and his new album is is is, is good. I think you'll 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 see it's it's a completely different kind of vibe from anything Nazareth's ever done as well. So he's kind of, you know, he's kind of treading new pastures as well. You know, it's going to be exciting for the fans to have a sort of both. Um, let me talk real quick about this Nazareth Loud and Proud box set, thirty nine disc super deluxe. Edition. Oh, it's unbelievable! It's unbelievable. <laughs> They sent me one. <laughs> well, they, they should send me one too. Uh, no, uh, no, but because well, it actually currently is not orderable in Canada. If you go to the link at the, the to the official website, it says Canada not part of the, anyway. But but talk that's to me. That's right. That's right. It's the, it's the record company thing. You yeah, know, that's it, what it terrible, is. It's terrible. Terrible. You know, <laughs> no, but okay. Talk talk to me about this. You know, remastering twenty three original studio albums, all these B sides and bonus tracks and. How involved were you in the compiling and and coming together of this package? Because it really is, I mean, it's it's. I'm just going to use the well, word. It's outrageous. I mean, it's it's just uh, in its uh, scope. It was, uh, what a thing. It's uh, so pretty unbelievable. I mean, I, the, as I say, the, I, I've been for about the past almost since they started talking about doing it. Uh, uh, John, the the guy that put it together at BMG, is a young guy. Absolutely great job he's done. But there was a couple of them put this the, the whole thing together, and they're always in touch with me. You know, to say we're going to do this. What do you think of that? You know, they, they, they wouldn't. They, they were wanting you, you know to know which, which sort of things you wanted included. You know, especially with the funny tracks that are that, that are not on albums. You know, the ones that are the you know other stuff sort of thing. And they, were, and they always wanted to, to to be to to keep me in in the picture. But I didn't. You know, they actually put that whole thing together themselves. I mean, I had nothing nothing to do with me. I was just there to say, oh no, well I don't like that if they did something. You know, but I didn't say that very often. Uh, just an, ama- an amazing feat. It was a it was a, a big 
project for, to do that whole thing, put that whole book together and to put all these tracks, to actually sit and listen to all those tracks. I don't know if I can do it. You know, sit and listen to all those tracks. Uh, and the, the, the albums were fair enough. The, the actual, the, the original albums, fair enough. They were there. That's You just put them out. But these other these other bonus things that they put together is incredible. It's just, uh, I, I can't think of anything we did that they don't have on there. You know, and I actually opened it. It, it, it was, it was actually, it was really, it, it was really funny. Much uh, they sent me about six boxes, and you know they go from uh, up to there's five thousand in this first batch, and I just one, I just took one random out of these boxes, and I opened up to see what it was, and of course they've all got a certificate in them, and it was zero 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 one, and I mean they didn't actually send, they, they swear that they, they said they would have liked to have sent me number one, but you know they didn't know because the boxes all got delivered, so I said nah come on you're telling me, they said no no you got <laughs> sent that box, and I got it just through luck, so do you think I should buy a lottery ticket today? You know. Yeah, I do. In fact, but 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 it is when you when you look at it. Cause I, all I've seen of it is pictures, and the pictures themselves just look spectacular. But when you look back at your career over fifty years, and you see it so physically in front of you in a massive box set of thirty nine discs, um, what does that say to you in terms of what you've done and your productivity and and just the scope of of Nazareth? Uh, well, you feel tired, <laughs> did, and you go, "Did I do all that?" <clears throat> it's actually. It's actually, it's actually quite, um, quite I was quite impressed by myself. You know, when you're looking, when you're looking at these things, when you're digging through the box and you say, "Oh, there's more," oh, and there's more, you know, and all these things, and oh, the, oh, not not just the, it's not just the tracks, it's, <clears throat> the songs all bring back memories, you know. But all the sleeves, you know, you remember, you know, all the all the times where you went to get the sleeve designed and. You know all the things that were talked about. I mean, the, the t- you take ages with things like that as well. You know, and sometimes you mess about trying to, uh, you know, agree on layouts and everything. You take you take longer. You take longer. You have more opinions about that than you do about the music sometimes. You know, so there's there's when you look at the thing, you're as you say, it is your whole life in a box. And it was just and it it, and it's a but it's a very impressive box. I've got to say, and I'm, I mean I was. I'd seen I'd seen I'd seen the video thing that we put on. They put a, a little video of the thing being opened and showing you what. Well, they showed you on our on our um, Facebook, and and it was very. It was, I thought, well, that looks quite impressive and everything. But but it looked impressive. But then when I got the actual box, physically got the box and opened it, and saw this stuff and took it out, you know, it's incredible. Just incredible. I mean, I, I, I had to watch how I put it back, you know. Yeah, it really it really is. Um, so talk to me about the longevity because when you look at bands out there, most bands are are in and out one year, two years, one song. You've got the Rolling Stones, you've got Kiss, you've got yourself, Cheap Trick. These bands that have forty, fifty year careers. Mm. Talk to me about the longevity and and what sort of keeps you around and kept you around because there's been a whole bunch of lineup changes. There's been a whole bunch of moments where. You know, record sales might have been up, and then they're down, and then they're this. What sort of says, I'm sticking this out. This is not, I'm not in a band. This is a musical career. This is a, uh, this is my life. Well, it is, and that that is exactly what it is. It's it's more, it's like, it's more than a career. It's a a way of life. You know, um, it's funny when you come, just an example, after you've been, you're touring, and you know, you're thinking, God, 
I wouldn't want to see the end of this tour. I've had enough of this on the road. <clears throat> then after you've been back, after about two weeks, when it gets to about half past eight at night, you start pacing the floor because you feel as if you should be someplace. You should be you're getting ready to get on a stage, you know. So it becomes, I think it's, it's it just becomes part of you the whole thing. And well, every time you think you've you've done it all, you know, every time you get an album finished, you think, well, that's that, that's that's it. I mean, we've got we've got ideas for the next one now, and this one isn't out yet, you know. So I think that's one of the things you actually look forward to to the next thing that you're going to do. I think that kind of keeps everybody going as well. Other than it being the fact that it's your job, uh, I don't think I, I, I don't think people really retire from the rock business. They just die eventually. But um, I've, I've 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 never I've never felt the urge to to say, well, that's it. I'm 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 not going to do it anymore. I don't think I could do that. That's interesting because I was going to ask you that. So, so looking back over the years, and, and there, there were times where you know snakes and ladder, no jive, and and, oh, and, I... and maybe the record sales weren't as prominent as they were. At no point did you say it's not worth it anymore. I'm done. There, there was none yeah. of that moment. Oh yeah, I think I think I mean you do feel. I'm not saying I haven't questioned it. You know I have. You know, and you question yourself. Uh, from time to time, I think everybody does that. But you see, it's we're 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 very very lucky. Musicians are very lucky, and artists and as a whole are, are a lucky breed because you're you're doing something, you're making a living at something that you love doing. I mean, you're you're making it some a living at something that you would do for free anyway. If you weren't getting paid, you would still do what, you, what you're doing. You know, it's 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 what you enjoy. I mean, a lot of people, I think, the majority of people when they're in jobs, they're looking forward to the retiral. But you, and and I don't blame them. Depending on some, some, they're doing things that they have to do. We've never had to do anything that we had to do. Well, maybe there's the odd gig maybe I've had to play when I didn't want to. But other than that, the actual life we chose this, and and uh, you can well you can pack it in any time you like. And there's not many of us do, unless uh, you know the, the the business packed you in. That's a different thing, you know. You know, I just interviewed Paul Stanley and Kiss of course is doing the end of the road tour are mm. are are you and I going to be doing one of those interviews in the next year or two i mean do you think because you know you have well, you have past 70 it probably is a little uh, harder to get out there physically and so <laughs> right i mean well, you tell me where i'm wrong no 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 i mean you know i'm i've never if i don't think about the age thing you know, i think i think your body definitely has, does catch up with you yeah, I don't. I don't party like I used to. You know, I mean, when I'm when I'm done, when we play the gig, I'm quite happy to come off, sit around for a wee while, having a chat. Maybe go back. We go back to the bar and have a a quiet one, and then uh, I'm off to my bed in the hotel. I'm not out rocking, uh, but I mean, none of the guys really are. We 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 don't we don't lead lead the what everybody thinks is the rock and roll lifestyle. You know, you'd be you'd be surprised at the amount of people that do exactly what I do. Um. No, I don't think I, I don't think you'll be doing the the interview on the retirement tour unless unless you want to do it like uh, you know what was the, the retirement tour like Elton you know we're going to do a, a farewell tour that lasts sixteen years that's fine you know I, I can do that I think they're funny those ones uh, we're going to we're going <laughs> this is my farewell tour and I'll see you in twenty twenty two. <laughs> that would be funny. The, uh, yeah, the 2022. Uh, <laughs> do you see yourself, though, at some point, cause you, you look at a band like Foreigner, 
with with Mick Jones. And Mm -hmm. there are some shows where he doesn't show up or he comes in and does half a show, et cetera, et cetera. And there, there seems to be this continuity where whether he's there or not, the band just keeps going. Do you see yourself at some point stepping back and having somebody else come in and play bass and maybe only doing half a show and, and transition and the band as a name and as an entity mm. can go on forever and, and there's just not – No, you? when I when I, when I I pack it and it will be because if – I, if I pack it and it will be because I can't do it. I mean, a bit like, like Dan, you know. He he didn't, <clears throat> he didn't retire uh, because he wanted to. I mean, his, his health made him do what he had to do, you know. And if that happened to me, then I would have to do that. But, but through choice, I'd, I'm saying that now anyway. And I'm a, I was 72 last week, and I don't feel as if I'm. I mean, what if I, when I look back to when I was a kid, somebody at 72 was Methuselah, you know. You went, you know, that was a different kind. It was a. Di- <laughs> we've got a different 72 these days. Um, no, no, I don't. I don't think I'll, I will actually. If, if, if I was, if I had to retire and do something, I wouldn't be going in and playing two or three songs. It would be retired. It would be finished. Right. But does and the band go on? It, yeah. Does the band? Does the oh, name go on? So. Okay. Yeah, I think so, and I think they should because I mean, Jimmy now has been the longest-serving guitar player in Nazareth history. I mean, he's done twenty-five years, so he is a Nazareth. Even if he didn't play in the early hits, he's played them often enough. Lee, the drummer, he's been in there twenty years as well. So we're not talking about guys that are just forming a, a, a band that's, uh, well, we'll go and learn the, the, we'll go out and be a cover band and learn the hits. These guys have been on albums, you know, they've, they've played everything, they've played all over the world many, many times around the world with Nazareth. So yeah, I think, that I, I would I would love to think that they could keep the the, the band going, the name going. And, and I, know, I know right now when we're playing, I see the crowds that we're playing to, and a lot of younger people coming to the gigs, you know, and I see them in Carroll and uh, they're digging it. They're digging it. And in some cases, uh, the, some of the some of the age groups that we're pointing out, <clears throat> when they see this Nazareth, it's the only Nazareth they know. When they're looking at us, they when you if you talked about the original band, they would that was before they were born, you know. So they they, they don't they only see Nazareth as they see it now when they come to the gigs. So I think yeah, I think you could keep it going. I mean, there'll be there'll be people out there who say nah nah nah, you know, you can't do that. That'll be older ones, you know, that, that that are saying that. By the time they die off and I die off, there'll be other, there'll, there'll still be Nazareth fans out there. I'm getting people writing to us and on our Facebook and our website. You see them all. You see the send the photos. You know, you can look at their Facebook photos. I mean, these are kids. These are these are young young people, and they see this band as the band that they like. They've never seen the other band. That's true. So so that that answers the question then that that. Pete is not Nazareth in the sense that if Pete's not there, the band doesn't go away. If you go away, it still carries no, on. No, I hope and... not. Um, no, I hope not. I mean, if we, if we if they manage, we managed to keep going very successfully when Dan left. So, I mean, if the bass player leaves, that would be. I think the only the, the thing they'd be saying, well, there's no original members left, and I think that would make it kind of funny. But uh, obviously, they'll, they'll cross that bridge when they come to it. Right, and of course. I've said this often, brand always trumps band. And, and uh, I, I think know, so, yeah. It sounds uh, a little perverted or whatever or wrong, but it's true, though. I mean, it really yeah, is. It's true. It's dead true. It's dead true. I mean, there's, there's some some bands, that, yeah, I, I, to tell you the truth, there's some bands out there, I couldn't tell you who played in them in the first place, the names of the people, but they're still going. And I don't know who's in the bands now, you know, but they're still playing the music that we, we like from that band. Yeah, and that's fine. Uh, I know that we're both running out of time, so I'll just ask you quickly about Carl. 
when it came time to make the change, what was sort of you looking for in a singer? Were you just looking for a young guy? Were you looking for for a certain? Talk talk to me about finding the new vocalist. What we were looking for was something that was not a dance sound-alike. You know, we didn't want a dance sound-alike because that would have been a disaster. That would have been the end of the band if you were just trying to impersonate something. And a lot of the the auditions that that were sent to me, people sending me their work, you know, let me hear them singing as of the songs. A lot of that, there was everybody wanted to sound like Dan McCafferty and I didn't want to know. There were a lot of good singers sent us in their stuff, you know, and emails and stuff, but I didn't, you know, I didn't, you know, that we didn't, we weren't interested. We wanted something that was really, really good, uh, but that sung the stuff with, with a different voice, sung the stuff their own way, and, and Carl fitted the bill. I mean, he more than fitted the bill. Plus, he's, he's, a, he's a great live entertainer. He's, he, money, he really is. He's, he's, he's got great presence. Oh, he's terrific live. I, I saw yeah. this lineup live. Well, of course. It I, was you, I, you terrific. Terrific. So you know, I, of course, the last time I spoke to you, that's right. You were just you'd just seen us, and you'd just seen Heap. That's right. Aye. Yep. We're we're racing each other again. Um, no, no. Actually, it was great when Carl fitted the bill perfectly, and and we knew we had the right man. When we knew we had a great singer, and he sings all the songs, all the nas of the songs, great. But he sings them his way, you know. And this was his chance to put his real stamp on it because he gets to sing a new album. And he's the only singer that's been on all those songs because it's the new one and it's his, you know. Yeah, and, and and I would imagine that the live show will feature a few of these or a, a few more of these oh, yeah, than a regular yeah, because yeah, he's on them yeah. now. I know you have an interview coming up in about three minutes, so I'll let you mm-hmm. uh, I'll let you get to that, and I will get to because I actually have another one at three thirty. Oh, well. Uh, well, well, no doubt I'll I'll talk to you in a wee while, Mitch, because we see that's twice this year already, so yeah. you never know. And I, yeah, I'll maybe speak to you early next year, or maybe see you when. I, I'll listen, look us up next time. I mean, I was in. Oh, but we in Mon- oh, we didn't go to Montreal this time. That's that's right. I didn't well, see was, you this there year. There was a Montreal show because uh, you played the Brass Monkey in Ottawa and you played the Corona in Montreal. Teatro this this, this time this year. No, this, no, was we didn't it la- no, Mon- was, uh, last. That was last year. Last uh, August. No, I just I just came back from Canada uh, a couple of weeks three three weeks ago, but we didn't nope. get to Montreal. No, nope, not this time. But anyway. But we I'll will see do it again. Next year. <laughs> and uh, always, always a pleasure. Enjoy your 87 interviews today. <laughs> and uh, and uh, okay. thank you, sir. Merci beaucoup, as we say. Cheers. Uh, uh, well, merci beaucoup to yourself. Okay, cheers, man. Bye bye. Cheers, Mitch. Bye. 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 From the Westwood One Podcast Network. Bye.